Welcome to episode 61 of Junk Filter. My name is Jesse Hawkins, and my returning guest from Madison, Wisconsin, is the comedy writer Ursula Lawrence. Ursula, welcome back to Junk Filter. Oh, thank you so much. I could not be more thrilled to be here, sincerely. Our subject for today is the Scottish filmmaker Bill Forsyth. We're going to be talking about three of the remarkable films that he made in the 1980s. His biggest hit, Local Hero, his Scottish comedy, Comfort and Joy, and his first American studio film, a film that we highly recommend you catch up to, the 1987 film Housekeeping, starring Christine Lottie. Ursula, had you seen um, Housekeeping before the show? No, no. Not only had I not seen it, but I had never heard of the book, and uh, which I now am quite embarrassed about because I have read that it is really sort of, uh, the book is supposed to be, is so acclaimed and is on all these like 10 best, or I think the BBC has it on the 100 greatest English language works of all time or something. So, uh, and I did, I asked two of my most sort of like my most literary friends if they knew the book and they both said it was one of their favorites. So um, I had not seen the movie or, or heard of the book, uh, and the movie is wonderful. And so I'm so, I'm so looking forward to talking about it and, and having more people find a way to watch it. I just want to mention to folks that you actually can rent Housekeeping on YouTube for $3.99, uh, which, so just because I think it's like one of these movies that is going to feel very obscure and hard for people to find, but it's actually not as hard to find uh, as, as you might think. So we'll, we'll talk about just the tragedy of how Housekeeping was handled by its American distributor. It's really one of the, the, one of the best films of the decade. I would go that far. Um, but it made something like $60,000 in the United States when it was released. Uh, yeah, that's, that's uh, amazing, actually. Uh, Christine Lottie was a star at that point. It's not yeah. like she wasn't famous. Uh, and the reviews are excellent. I think I read, went back and read the Ebert review. Uh, the reviews are excellent, and um, the movie itself is amazing. But uh, the trailer is absurd. And what I would suggest is that everybody watch the film and then watch the trailer because if you watch the trailer, you won't want to watch the film. Uh, and if you watch the film and then watch the trailer, you will like, appreciate what was done. Appreciate the sort of the tragedy of what was done to this film. When their mother didn't return home from her Sunday drive, Lucille and Ruthie thought it was strange. But they never knew how strange the family could be until Aunt Sylvie came to take care of them. Sylvie! Because Sylvie Hi! isn't like the rest of Fingerbone. Sylvie! Oh! Disaster doesn't upset her. Oh, no. Public opinion doesn't bother her. Well, hello. I met a really nice lady at the station. She was traveling to see her cousin hanged. And conformity Hi. doesn't appeal to her at all. Yeah, I mean, I went off automatically to go see Housekeeping when it opened because I live in Toronto. So, you know, a movie that gets barely seen anywhere, at least it'll play in Toronto. So I got to see it in a movie theater and I saw it when it was a brand new movie in 1987. And I have to tell you, that I have never stopped thinking about this movie. It's so affecting. It's so affecting. I mean, that's actually very interesting to me, too, because I don't, and I don't think that, like, the, I'm not going to say that the experiences documented in it are somehow, like, particular to a a particularly, like, gendered experience, but I will be honest that, like, it is a movie about women, 
really intensely about women and and actually the kind of movie that people say like nobody ever makes and it's like well actually somebody made this movie in like 1983 or what, whatever the year was right like a, a movie of, with all of these like completely driven by these women who are like so different and so nuanced uh, but I found it very affecting, like, as a mother, I mean, I hate doing that, like, as a mother thing, but like, uh, and as a, you know, as a, as a, as somebody with sort of an anxiety about people leaving, I mean, it just is so emotionally engaging and affecting. And even though it is very sort of gentle, uh, there is a constant level of anxiety uh, throughout it. And, uh, whatever level of separation anxiety you might have within you will be, will be exploited by this film. Uh, and it is, it's, it's deeply affecting. But the way they marketed it, Columbia pictures, they tried to make it look like a wacky comedy about a wacky aunt. It's a movie about three women, but the movie was like, you know, these girls have a lot on their hands when aunt <laughs> Sylvie moves into town, whatever. It was just so, horrible yeah it's it has that that classic like 80s guy narration and i just i don't know why they did that they must have had did they have another film that year that they wanted to like that they wanted to win all the, i mean because i always i have that theory about like there's some films that i love that i think like were tanked because the studio had another film that they wanted to get all the awards for or something but i don't know why they would do that i mean it was so if you had seen the film you could never cut that trailer it, you know, I'll tell you all about it. It's a, it's a, this movie in short was a victim of regime change at the studio. Interesting. But, Same you one. know, but, but uh, I'll tell you all about it. So Forsyth had this very strange uh, entry into the world of film. When Forsyth got out of high school, he broke into the movie business by answering a newspaper ad that said, lad required for film company. Ah. That's Forsyth funny. said, it felt glamorous and cool and interesting. I had this image of crew cuts, baggy trousers, cameras, and jazz music. Oh, that's amazing. But when he got in there, uh, he wound up basically doing this 10-year apprenticeship, working on industrial films and documentaries in, in uh, Glasgow. Um, oh, that's fascinating. Just wow. slaving away, learning his trade, watching a lot of movies. Like, that's when his sort of interest in film grew like he, he tells this funny story about him and his mate going off to a rep theater to watch Piero Le Fou, the Godard film and just having his mind blown and then you know going out and having a cigarette with his friend afterwards and he was like that was really good wasn't it you know like just like <laughs> like didn't know that movies could do that in the mid to late 70s he began putting what he learned into practice and he took on this new challenge because he was already 30 at this point um, and he decided to make films to, and he made two low budget films with local talent. He couldn't get any financial help, uh, to do anything. So he just basically self-financed these things. He just put money together and, uh, got these movies made and he shot on 35 millimeter, which is very ambitious for an independent filmmaker in the late seventies. Yeah. So he shot a movie called that sinking feeling, which was cast with some teenage Glasgow theater students. And from those actors that he worked with, he went on to make Gregory's Girl, which was calculated to be sellable. Like he he decided, I'll make a movie about football and teenagers and girls, and uh, we'll see how it goes. But, you know, did it in this very idiosyncratic way. Um, and it turned out to be a local success. Uh, it got seen all over the United Kingdom. It got critically acclaimed. And then all of a sudden, 
he was a successful filmmaker. This is a quote from Forsyth. He said, there were 5 million people living in Scotland who had rarely seen their lives on the cinema screen. And I figured if only half of them saw it and they paid two quid a ticket, that was 5 million pounds. So a uh, very, very uh, risky uh, decision that paid off. I saw Gregory's Girl on pay TV when I was a kid. The funny thing about Gregory's Girl is when it got picked up for North American distribution, they redubbed the entire movie so that you could hear the Scottish accents a little more clearly because it was heavy duty um, Scottish brogues. Wow. I mean, they didn't they subtitle Train Spotting? Do I remember that correctly? I feel like I when I saw Train Spotting, there were subtitles, but I I could be wrong about that. So Gregory's Girl, big hit. Um, around this time, um, he was he was making the the rounds in the British film financing world. People wanted to talk to uh, Bill Forsyth now because he had a minor li- license to print money. In in and he you know now there was a Scottish film industry growing thanks to one man. So he wound up working with this very successful British film financier whose name was David Putnam. He was a film producer and financier. Um, he had just won the Oscar for Chariots of Fire. And right. he went up to Forsyth and said, let's do, let's do a movie. Let's do a movie in Scotland, but let's do a movie that has appeal for Americans. Let's have a Scottish story and with a couple of American actors in the cast and we can get financing in the United States and British financing and we can make a go of it. So Forsyth thought about it and decided that the oil boom in Scotland in the early 80s was a good subject. And he wrote a screenplay. So Putnam uh, got his British backers, Goldcrest Films, to finance the entire movie. And when it came to casting Americans, they decided to get uh, Burt Lancaster to, to be in the film as a big movie star. And when Warner Brothers found out about that and that Lancaster's asking price was $2 million in 1982, uh, they kicked in another million and a half for U.S. distribution. So all of a sudden, now Local Hero had money to pay Lancaster and extra money for the movie. So they were able, they had higher production values and a movie star. And what percent of the budget overall was that? A third? I mean, it, I really, <laughs> really, it might have been. But they do say that the budget's always driven up by talent. So, yeah. but, what ta- but what talent? I mean, it's worth it. It's worth it. He's amazing. Yeah. Um, so Local Hero, um, it's a great film. Uh, it was a critical hit, a commercial hit. And um, I hadn't seen it in a long time. It was a pleasure to be uh, reacquainted with this movie. You've seen it many times, though. I think it's in that it's in a, on a short list for me of films that I've probably seen more than five times. And uh, it's really it's one of my my parents' favorite films. So I probably started seeing it young. And then I think it's actually been been lost, I think, in my generation uh, and anybody younger than me, which there are obviously many people, uh, are not very, very aware of this film, probably because they're also not very aware of Peter Regert. And uh, it is, I think, if you're sort of, you know, for boomers and maybe maybe people 10 or so years older than me, there's some, there's some historical memory of this film. But uh, so I've, I've insisted on many friends and boyfriends watching it over the years. Um, but it is so wonderful and I never get tired of it. And I always feel it's like I was, I was saying to you that I always feel invested, so invested in it that I still root for a different ending. <laughs> and 
I just, I love, I love everything about it. It's, it is so timeless. It's so perfect. Um, and I always find something new in it, which is funny because it's a very simple film, but I always find something new to appreciate. So if you haven't, if anybody hasn't seen it, I mean, you've got to, you've got to see it. This is the new film from the producer of Chariots of Fire, Local Hero. The survey teams have found just about the only suitable bay on the entire coast. I think we should get a negotiator on the side right away. We're here on kind of a mission. Same here. I don't want to be coy with you, Gordon. We want to buy the whole place. We want to buy everything from the cliffs to the north through to the bay on the far side. That's all. Oh, boy. Are we going to be rich? Peter Riegert. Bert Lancaster. Take the chopper. Go to Aberdeen. Get on over to Houston. I want to stay here. Run the hotel. Do little bits of business. You can go to Houston. Take the Porsche, the house, the job. It's a good life there, Gordon. Local Hero. Can you tell us basically what Local Hero is about, Ursula? Sure, absolutely. Uh, it's about a young American uh, oil industry exec who I believe is in sort of sort of some sort of acquisitions where he goes out and buys you know large pieces of land that are sitting on top of oil, and uh, he lives in Houston and he drives a fancy car and he has a very cool '80s condo and he's always you know hitting on the secretaries in his office, and uh, he is sent to uh, to acquire the land underneath a village in coastal Scotland. Uh, but before he goes, the CEO of this oil company or the, the president, I guess the owner of the oil company calls him to his office and says, actually, I really love space. I need you to watch for a comet. Uh, and, and once he, and this is actually very important because it helps him sort of cement his connection to this place. Because once he goes to this, this town, uh, he sort of engages with it both in terms of the individuals, but he takes this assignment seriously and starts paying attention to the sky. Um, and ultimately, and I think we'll talk about this with uh, with um, housekeeping as well, but it really is a film about the interaction between humans and nature and the interaction between humans and the spaces that they occupy and uh, how, they, how they shape spaces and how they are shaped by them. And so uh, it's just a very beautiful beautiful film. And, you know, of course he, he undergoes a transition, uh, through this process of trying to buy this town. I, I mean, I think that one thing that's really important when you talk about this film and you talk about the plot is that, uh, it actually inverts a lot of the sort of like expectations for a film like this, right? Like, you know, man comes to town or stranger comes to town, whatever. This is a genre we've all seen before, but usually the townspeople are sort of heroic and not easily bought off. And the guy, uh, you know, just sexist, but the, the, the protagonist uh, is very resistant to change and uh, the arc is more pronounced. And in fact, uh, it's quite the opposite in this film. He, um, the townspeople are actually very eager uh, to, to sell the land because actually life is kind of hard in coastal Scotland in 1984. And, uh, and the, the transition that he undergoes is actually much more gentle and as I watch it, I think just in my experiences as a writer, getting the notes where it's like, everything's more, you know, show more that this character changes, like make it more extreme that the townspeople resist. And there's not a lot of more in this film, right? Like he doesn't actually resist that change. He actually, 
he kind of goes with it. And I think that's because of that. You're learning something about that character. It's not, it doesn't have to be this like archetypical, like corporate young guy. Like he's actually kind of open to it. Um, and he sort of goes with it. And the townspeople themselves are also not like, you know, these like people who are like these sort of Capra-esque, per- perfect small town heroes. Um, so it's just a really, uh, it's just a re- very surprising, like you find yourself surprised all the time by the way the characters are reacting to the situations that they find themselves in. It's funny too, because I mean, the movie sort of sets it up that it's the big, bad, evil oil company. Uh, in the first couple of minutes where we watch uh, this uh, meeting with Burt Lancaster and the executives at Knox Oil, and we so- see this industrial film playing, remember... Uh, Bill Forsyth has a background in making industrial films. Right. Oh, so interesting. Right. Amazing. So, mm-hmm. so the the industrial film in this movie is pitch perfect. Uh, but the narrator says something really insane. <laughs> the narrator in the in the move the little industrial movie says, "Today, a Knox engineer will tell you that he might need a little time, but he'll get the oil." He knows that a little time is all that we have left. <laughs> yes, that is so. F- I heard that in the in the narration. It was so funny because actually the politics in this movie are very like they're sort of they're like loosely critical of oil, but like in a pre global warming kind of way. Like it's, yeah. it's just more like a geopolitics. Like there's some like offhanded comments about like oh this is a stable government. It's not like you know uh, the, the middle going to the Middle East or whatever. Uh, and the oil tycoon is like still an oil tycoon, but he's not, I mean, in, in, look at this point, like an oil tycoon has to be like somebody who's just like unequivocally evil. Right. But yeah. like this character is like, not like that, but that is so fascinating that they say that. And I guess, I don't know. What do you think that's coming from? It's coming off of like, you know, the sort of gap, the crises of the seventies around oil or just sort of like things having to do with like military industrial <laughs> complex, I guess, and cold, late, late cold war, I guess I would imagine. Well, there's maybe. this, there's this low boil of that stuff throughout this film. Like there's the environmental stuff, which is not front and center, but is there. Um, there is uh, military stuff going on as well. There's, um, there's uh, British uh, Warcraft uh, aircraft flying through the skies in this beautiful place, and they seem to be bombing a beach nearby. They're dropping bombs hear, in the water. They're, they're dropping, dropping bombs in the water in the ocean. We, we're hearing explosions and stuff. It's It sounds like wartime sometimes, even though it's this right. bucolic place. And this was, uh, you know, early 80s Britain, where there was a lot of distractions from the economic problems with military sort of uh, chest beating with Prime Minister Thatcher. So that's there too. Um, and, you know, this oil company, would you would think would be coded as being uh, that they're going to wreak havoc on this town. But we were talking off air that one thing that is very remarkable and very hard to do as a writer is to uh, create a compelling and interesting uh, feature film with no antagonist. Yeah, it's amazing. You really cannot, there's not even really an existential threat in this film because the townspeople themselves want to sell the town. So uh, it's it's quite amazing. I mean, there is sort of tension and resistance scene to scene that, that move the action forward. You have to have that. Uh, but nobody is bad. Uh, there is a sort of uh, inherent goodness to most of the characters in the film. Um, yet you still find yourself uh, engaged in it. You don't even really, I don't even know, think that the audience is meant to take a position on whether or not these people should sell this town. You know, Mm -hmm. you don't really find yourself, that is almost sort of uh, incidental in this, I think. 
uh, it's more just about the sort of the sort of day to day lives of these people and what what happens when this guy shows up. Um, yeah, Peter Riegert's in town to basically work out a deal for the town. Like the the idea that Knox Oil has is to create an oil refinery in the town and and basically take the town and turn it into a gigantic oil refinery. Uh, and the, the townsfolk are all like, great, that's a lot of money for each of us. It's like they're all going to win the lottery. Their only opposition to uh, Mac, the Peter Riegert character, is uh, sort of kayfabe because they want to drive up the price. Like they want it, they're acting hard to get, but they actually are very scared of blowing it with him. The only reason that Peter Riegert is here, by the way, is because his name is Mac and he's sent there because they think he's Scottish. But in right, fact, he's, he's clearly <laughs> Jewish. I mean, he never, he never says that, but he says my, when my, my parents came over, my grandparents came over at Ellis Island, they chose McIntyre because they thought it sounded like an American, it was an American name. Yeah. Um, but he's, I, I can say this because I'm Jewish. He's very nebbishy. And uh, I, I, actually, one thing that we talked about, too, was that the studio, I think the studio wanted Henry Winkler and also Michael Douglas also tried to get in on this film. And neither of them, I, I love Henry Winkler, first of all. I mean, Douglas yeah. is great, too, but I love Henry Winkler. I think he would have been amazing. But neither yeah. of them are as as nebbishy as Peter Riegert. And uh, yeah. he is so he's so good in this. Can we just talk for a few minutes about how charming and lovely Peter Riegert is as a screen presence. He's fantastic. I mean, he's actually been on the last several episodes of succession, which has been very exciting for all the, for all of us uh, fans to see him again. Cause you don't see him a lot. I actually met him on set once. Uh, he was, he had a featured role on this show damages uh, for quite a while. And I would visit that set as part of the job that I had for the director's guild at the time. And, uh, and he was there once and we were both behind the camera, you know, behind Video Village watching stuff being shot. And I just, uh, a lot of times people were just standing around. So it was easy to talk to people. And I just said to him, like, I, it's really lovely to meet you. I love Local Hero. And he said, I don't hear that a lot from people your age. I think I was like 27 at the time, but I think it's true. Like generationally, he was very, he was very nice. He was very gracious. Um, but that's really all I needed to say. I wanted to say to him. <laughs> um, but he's still around, so underutilized, but such a, such a great character actor. So, so good. Yeah, he he popped up because he was part of the cast of Animal House. That's when I first yes. noticed Peter Riegert. Yes, but, my husband um, talks about this all the time, that he just like loves him so much in Animal House. I mean, I... <laughs> he was one of the human beings in Animal House. Like, he was like the audience identifier in that movie. He was the nice guy. Him and I guess Tom Hulse in that film were the sort of oh, the Tom more Hulse. reasonable uh, people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How funny, right? That makes sense. They both have kind faces. That makes sense. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Riegert <laughs> is is so good in this film. This is like one of his few leading roles, and um, you know, it, basically, he's being uh, seduced by the place. Like, you know, it's such a strange little village, and he is definitely a fish out of water. And it, it, he has a funny uh, team with him and Peter Capaldi, the very young Peter Capaldi in this film. Great. He's probably like. 24 or 25. I never think of Peter Capaldi as being a sort of vi, you know, a sweetheart, like a. Oh, or that like, tall, that lanky. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, who among us does not love Peter Capaldi? First of all, let's, let's be honest. He's incredible no matter what, but this is, he is playing the opposite of the angry Scott in this. Uh, he's playing a goofy, sweet guy. 
So it was wonderful to see him so young, a baby, a baby, truly, in this film. There's um, a there's a subplot going on in Local Hero where there's a um, there's a, a dive. A, a, what is it? It's a scientific uh, uh, project that's going on on the beach because there's a certain uh, chain of the tide. Like there's a, there's a current in the tide that comes from the from a warm climate that comes up to this uh, beach in Scotland. And it's very, uh, it's creating a lot of interesting wildlife and water life. And um, that is another thing that the Knox company is underwriting. Uh, and there's a sort of, there's a minor dread that, that this operation is uh, a, a sort of a false flag in a way to get their mitts on the area that they're not actually going to devote uh, the energy to an ecological project. Right, and but that's the part that Capaldi seems to be most uh, wrapped up around, and in particular with a woman who works for the team, who we discover like halfway through the movie also has webbed feet. And I think she's supposed to be like a, a silky, whatever that. I mean, you do yeah. see at the end that when she dives, like you do see that she has essentially fins, or like, I mean, she, you think she lives in the water essentially, and which is very beautiful, but like. The, the, that whole plot is so interesting too, because that's also very subtle, right? In the Hollywood version, that's like a huge deal. This like this woman is being led to believe that they're going to build this like aquatic research center, and then he has to tell her and what's going to happen. And this, it's just it's like a it's like a couple scenes. I mean, it really makes you think as a writer how little you have to do to get something across uh, if you trust the audience. Like that's what I think, and I felt that way in Housekeeping too. But it's like. If you believe that your audience is smart and you treat your audience like they care, or you assume that they care about the characters, you don't have to beat them over the head with stuff. Mm-hmm. You can just have that in there and they can bring their own sort of emotional significance to bear on it. So like we didn't need to be told that this guy was completely flipped out about having to tell this woman that they weren't going to like build her marina until they finally, or not marina, but like aquatic research center until they finally do ultimately actually decide to build it. Um, but it, but it's still an important turn in the film. Yeah, and I, I think that that is sort of like that is like one of the great lessons you can learn from Forsyth as a screenwriter is that you can just you don't have to write three pages on something. You can write three sentences. You have to be very good though to be able to write it. In, but most people take three pages. If you're a very good screenwriter, you could write it in three sentences. I couldn't do it, but. And the other great performance in this movie is Dennis Lawson, who plays the uh, innkeeper slash <laughs> accountant slash ringleader of the town who's, uh, you know, he's taken it upon himself to be the guy who's the negotiator with the with Peter Riegert and the oil company. And uh, he seems to be uh, like they're both sort of playing each other in, in certain ways, but in a non-malevolent way, you know, like it's like um, the art of the deal or something like that. Like. <laughs> <laughs> what what he was great did he go i i don't recognize him what else what did he go you know on to do what's funny about him is that uh star wars nerds will know who he is because he was in star wars the first star wars and return of the jedi as wedge luke's friend wow. one of the x-wing pilots the one who lives in both of those movies and he has a little cameo in uh the force awakens as well but so, you know, he had like a, a strange sort of connection to the Star Wars series. So oh, if there's maybe there's some Star Wars nerds who have only seen Local Hero because Wedge is in it. But oh, uh, that's so funny. there's a really funny scene in the movie where when they when they first arrive to the inn 
to stay there uh, with a bunny rabbit that they've gotten on the road, that they've injured a bunny. <laughs> and and uh, I can't remember the line exactly, but Peter Riegert says, and a, and, a bu- and also a bunny or and a bunny also. I can't remember the line. But... Right, right, right. But and he names it after his ex-girlfriend, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but he, he matter-of-factly tells Dennis Lawson that there's a bunny rabbit here too. And then when Lawson goes to talk to his wife afterwards, he starts cracking up and imitating him saying, and there's a bunny with us. Yes. <laughs> I mean, but that is such a good example of like the le- the sort of like amount of texture in this film that's so natural, but so significant. Like, you know, it actually is important that you know that he saved this bunny because you kind of know right away that he's like a good guy, right? Yeah. And like a sensitive guy. And so... But that's all you need to know. Again, this is one of these examples where he just sort of gives you a little bit, but you, that's enough. And he trusts you to know that that's enough. Uh, but there's so much like that in the film, so much sort of texture that I think other people might sort of like paste on at the end of writing a script, but is so um, natural uh, and fits so well that it feels significant, even if it has no bearing on the plot. And uh, and it just makes it it's such a rich film. Every Even the smallest parts are are so developed. I mean, one thing I kept thinking too is that, you know, we've all seen these movies, whatever movie about some small town in Scotland or Ireland where like there's these like drunken, goofy Gaelic Celt, I don't know, whatever, like sort of old guys that sit around drinking and they're all the same. It's all the same character, right? It's like, uh, and, and this was just, it's, you have those guys in this, but they actually have like interesting sort of things about them that make them quirky and interesting ways that are also very like normal ways and, and tell you something about the character that's a little bit more profound than just like, they like to sing Scottish songs and drink a lot, you know? So I, I think, and maybe that's because he's Scottish himself. So he wasn't writing these like sort of one dimensional ethnic stereotypes, but yeah, uh, but it's, it's a joy. Well, it's like, um, it's a movie that is self-consciously trying to uh, export the idea of Scotland to an international audience, Um, you know, and so many of Forsyth's successes as a director are that, representing Scottish life, but in a way that Scottish people could recognize, as opposed to sort of, you know, the cliches of uh, Scottish life made for an international audience, like it was loved first and foremost by the local audience and was translatable across the world. I mean, that's so interesting because it, it's like they, they, the, it's so beautiful. I mean, I'm very biased because I think that Scotland is the most beautiful place that I've ever been. I'll just be completely honest. I really do think that it is just so stunning there. And, but the people know it, you know, the, the people in the film know it. It's not that they're just sort of like immune to it. They also know that they live in a very beautiful, uh, a beautiful space. And so he is selling that in a way, but um, he doesn't have to work very hard. Also very subtle use of special effects because we see the Aurora Borealis and we see comets in the sky, but it's not uh, special effecty, you know, it looks really natural. I, I'm sure that they uh, didn't actually film during, a, during a Aurora Borealis, but it feels like they did. Yeah, you're not taken out of it by the special effects. I would the, say. The, the centerpiece and highlight of the movie for me is the long Kaylee sequence, the big party where um, the, it really takes hold for Mac, the Peter Riegert character, like his love of this place is pretty much sealed from this wonderful party where everyone gets drunk. And there's like a Russian guy who who's coming over because I guess he's 
I, I can't remember what Russia's involvement in the movie is. Like he's a fisherman or something like that, fishing off the coast of Scotland. But I think he's, he's also having an affair with the woman who runs the only grocery store in town. So yeah. it's like he's kind of it's kind of a cover to just come and see her. I think, but he says he likes to fish in those waters. I think he's sort of and he's sort of hiding money offshore because he's also a capitalist. Yeah, um, which is very funny. But but he uh, has a show stopping performance where he sings a song about the Lone Star State or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Which is amazing because Peter Riegert's character has come from Houston, so yeah. it's not lost on him that that's also very funny, right? Um, it's a great contrast. That character is also wonderful, and I love how they, that character is just sort of like integrated into their posse. Like yeah. they sort of, there's sort of like a group of these guys that sort of like go around together. That starts with just Peter Riegert and Peter Capaldi, and then they sort of like the guy, the owner slash accountant slash mayor guy, and the Russian guy, and they're all kind of like working on this together and you don't again you don't really need to explain it it just makes a lot of sense um their sort of shared interest in, in solving this problem together uh the camaraderie is actually very very subtle but very lovely you want to hang out with them uh kind of thing yeah and 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 um peter Riegert's character gets properly drunk and there's a, another great scene where he just basically confesses how much he loves this place to Dennis Lawson and, and offers him a deal. Like like they're in negotiation mode over the the sale to the town. But he's basically saying, OK, this might sound crazy, but let's switch places. I'll stay here and I'll run the hotel. You move to Houston. You can make a success for yourself in Houston. And and the guy says, what about my wife? And he's like, well, that's the thing. I, I need you to leave your wife here because I'm in love with your wife. Right. Stella, <laughs> which I read too. Was, it's very interesting. Stella is obviously a very sort of astronomical name, right? I yeah. mean, there's so much to think about the love of sort of space and sky. and But it's so funny because he just, he, you know, it's not, there's no competition. There's no antagonism. They made a musical of this film, which I um, Sorry to say, uh, and I did read that they built that into a love triangle, which I think is really very sad because I think that the the sort of like the friendliness of that exchange and just that dynamic between the three of them is actually very very nice. Um, yeah, and nine out of ten movies would have the Dennis Lawson character punch uh, Peter right, Rieger totally. across the room for for lusting after his wife, but in this uh, scenario, it's fine, you know, because it's like. It, this movie is ultimately a very sweet film and, and people are very uh, upfront about their emotions in the movie. Uh, also, that uh, Riegert sees this incredible uh, meteor shower and Aurora Borealis and runs to the pay phone. There's like one phone in the whole town to like phone Burt Lancaster to tell him all about it, uh, just like Lancaster told him to. And uh, Lancaster gets so excited that he actually like flies... <laughs> directly to Scotland to find out more about what he's seen. Right. He takes a helicopter he's... to the beach and right. And yet for, I think there's a moment too, where you almost think the light from the helicopter is one of these uh, sort of, you know, phenomena interstellar phenomena that he wants to, to see. And um, so that's very, that's very clever. I just want to say though, about the emotion, the sort of like the idea of like emotions in this film that actually, while people are very, there's a lot of clarity around people's sort of emotions and interests. It's not actually, and, and this is true of housekeeping too. And I think why I love both movies, I don't like overt sentiment. I really don't. I like to feel like I, I feel like patronized by it often, or I feel like it doesn't read as real. These films are very uh, understated. Uh, they're very um, subtle. They have, you know, 
they're dealing with like huge emotional uh, moments and issues uh, and in housekeeping crises, I think. Um, but uh, again, Forsyth trusts you to understand and be able to relate to what that feels like. And he doesn't hit you over the head with it. And if you have a very low tolerance for sentimentality, like I do, uh, you will appreciate uh, that so much because you still get so much out of it. Uh, but you don't need to sort of be, you know, it's not saccharine in any way. No, this is a very sweet film, but nobody would call it saccharine, I think, is a, is a good way to put yeah. it, maybe. And, and it has a bittersweet finale. As it turns out, the Lancaster character is so enamored with the natural beauty of the of the position of this location in the sky and the, the, the light shows at night and the Aurora Borealis and the beautiful view of the beach that he basically decides that instead of putting the oil refinery there, they're going to beef up the uh, scientific aspect of the expedition, like the uh, oceanic center and to put a big telescope uh, up. And uh, you know, it's this this sort of uh, space cadet idea that the Lancaster has (laughs) that, means that they don't need to displace the entire town. So nobody actually gets the fortune that they were all expecting. Uh, but he they, says there will be work though. Cause yes. I think they say at one point, like there'll still be work. There'll be, or there'll be more work. It'll be better work. Uh, it's a very lovely idea. A lot of movies would have Riegert be run out of town on a rail because they were all expecting to become millionaires. And uh, Riegert did not deliver on the promise and uh, at the same time, when he goes home, it's uh, they all wave goodbye to him because, you know, in the grand scheme of things, they all get to live their lives and things are going to improve in the region. They're just not all going to become zillionaires. You know, I think there's it's not again, it's not overstated, but there is some like ambivalence in the town around sort of there's a scene where one drunk guy sort of talks to the other drunk guy and says something like, I know I'm going to be rich, but I don't feel any different. I thought I'd feel differently. And it's a funny scene, but I think he's, that's an important one because it sort of is like, it's, it's so abstract to the people in this town. I mean, there's another scene where they're debating whether or not they should buy like a Maserati or a Porsche, I think uh, with the money. So it's like this sort of but it's so abstract to them that maybe they all never sort of believed that it would happen anyway. Um, but, uh, but actually I, you know, they, they come to love him or tolerate him, the Peter Rieger character. Uh, and actually I, I find, I feel very, I was saying to you that I find myself rooting for a different ending every time because he is ultimately alienated from this town that he really has loves the Lancaster character dispatches with him in 15 seconds, essentially. It says like, you've got to go back to Houston and figure this out right away. And he's sort of taken aback and he does, he has to leave right away. He has no sort of, you know, time to just stick around or help build this amazing center. And he's just sent back to Houston. And, uh, and then you have this very sad final shot where the, the single phone in this town is ringing and you sort of know that he's, it's probably him calling, but there's no, nobody answering. I mean, he's, he's alienated from this town. And I think if you think about, what goes on after this film for this character. Like it's, it's very easy to imagine him just being sort of reabsorbed into the person that he was before. So it's almost a sort of like little magical moment in, in that character's life. Um, uh, and very sad actually, if you think of it, right. Cause he had this sort of like brief period of self-actualization through sort of nature and community. And then uh, it's, it's lost. So I don't know, to me, that's a very tragic ending on some level um, for such a lo- lovely film. Yeah, it really captures the uh, the feeling that you have of uh, going to a transformative place, like on a big vacation, a wonderful time, and then you have to come back to your apartment and realize that life is has been 
dormant and now has to be started up again. You know, like he's, he lays, he lays out all the seashells from his pocket on the counter in his condo. And, you know, and then we cut to the phone booth in the town in Scotland ringing and we know it's him. And we hope that we know that he's hoping that someone's going to pick up the phone and uh, the movie ends. Yeah, it's very, it's uh, I, I don't think it's abrupt, but it is very sad. And uh, it's, you know, the, the ending for the town is a positive one, but it's, um, but I think it's very, it's very real and um, it's very affecting. So, and I do, I, you know, I want to talk about this with housekeeping too, but I think that both of these films are films about the way that humans interact with nature. And I, I said that before, but I, I think it's so important. I don't think it even, he's not even really setting, setting out to make a environmentalist or politically didactic film about the environment. I think it's a more, I, I was saying to you earlier today, I think it's a more sort of like transcendentalist idea about, uh, about sort of what nature can be and how humans can sort of be enveloped by the, the sublime in the natural world and how it can change people. And it's not, it's vaguely political in this film because you're talking about oil and capitalism, I guess, but um, it's more just about uh, the, the sort of profundity of, of interacting with sea and sky. And, and, um, and uh, it's just, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm maybe not articulating this clearly enough. And I think it comes through even, even more perhaps in housekeeping, but I think I see that as the through line between those two films and um just such an important idea. I mean, there is no, there is no local hero without this, that the, I, I would argue that the space and the, the geography changes him as much as the interaction with the people, mm-hmm. uh, because so much time is given to him just spending time alone in that environment, uh, which is never boring. It's, no. it's surprisingly not boring to watch him search for seashells or walk along the beach. Um, because the cinematography is so beautiful that you feel like what he must be feeling. Like this is so such an incredible uh, visual and sort of like atmospheric experience, I guess. So I just, I I think it's really a a love letter to sort of to, to natural spaces that, that can transform people too. I went on a big uh, end of my twenties train ride across all of Europe and, uh, one of my favorite places that I, that I was in, I spent about two weeks there was in Edinburgh. And I agree with you. It was like beautiful place. Like I looked forward to every sunset because it was always like this very dramatic William Turner painting style sunsets, you know, because <laughs> we're so far up North and the world up there. Yeah. It gets dark at 11 o'clock or whatever. <laughs> I mean, it's like, you have, it's not quite Scandinavia, but it's basically Scandinavia. I mean, I, it's like, uh, no, it's actually, I went up to the Isle of Skye. I think we took a train around. I wish I had spent more time there. It's totally stunning. Um, if that's your thing, if you're into like a lot of deeply saturated green, uh, and if you're into the desert, you're not going to like Scotland. But, um, yeah. if you like things to be green and moist, <laughs> that sounds disgusting, um, sort of, uh, rainy and, uh, you know, it's, uh, absolutely just a wonderful place. And I want to just say that I am completely for Scottish independence (laughs) (laughs) on this topic. And even though I know it would uh, rob uh, parliament of some of their best and most important left-wing politicians, it would give Scotland the chance to really flourish even more and and come into its own as a true and beautiful social democracy that maybe I hope to live in one day. I'm not just saying, (laughs) Um, but 
Yes. <laughs> I want to talk about a movie that he made in between Local Hero and Housekeeping that I quite like uh, called Comfort and Joy, which was um, after the success of Local Hero, all of a sudden Bill Forsyth uh, had a lot easier time of getting financing. And, and for this movie, he worked with uh, an American distributor, Universal, which pretty much left him alone, but also didn't really spend any money on promoting the movie. Uh, it was not nearly the success that Local Hero was, but it is also uh, key to understanding Forsyth's sense of humor. He uh, d- uh, came up with a tagline for this movie. He wanted it to be promoted as a serious comedy. And it's about <laughs> Asgo radio DJ named Alan Dickey Bird, played by a really good actor, Bill Patterson, who uh, I remembered from the cast of The Killing Fields. But he is uh, he's the lead in this movie. And Forsay said that it's a movie about a man who gets a second adolescence. Uh, he's a man who is abruptly dumped by his kleptomaniac girlfriend, who they've been together for four years. We see them uh, going Christmas shopping. This movie is set during the Christmas season. And we see that she's like shoplifting from this really nice store. <laughs> right. And there's this tension in the film because, well, we haven't been informed yet what this guy does. But we are aware that his girlfriend is like stealing and could get in like she can get in trouble for what she's doing. She's but she's dressed very well and she seems to get away with it. And then all of a sudden she uh, announces just before the movers arrive that she's moving out, that it's, uh, you know, I got to I'm it's it's over between us. And then there's a knock on the door and the movers are there. (laughs) She takes all of his stuff too. I mean, there's a, there's a continuity there between her shoplifting and then she's, and actually it's very funny because he, she doesn't tell him he's, she's leaving. She just starts packing around him, like taking things off the wall. So it is sort of this, you know, similar uh, MO to just the the shoplifting habit. And, And then she leaves him with absolutely nothing. And so, you know, you, she's sort of essentially like stolen his life, um, at the same time, right? Yeah, but, but but you know, I I got some tension out of it because, like, you know, he's in love with this girl and he really misses her, but she's bad news. Oh, <laughs> so totally unstable, <laughs> right? Absolutely, right, right. Yes, right, totally. Yeah. Oh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. There's a lot of tension there because you actually kind of think that that's where the movie's going to go, and it doesn't. It doesn't go there. I actually, I, I want to just mention too that like that this diverges significantly from local hero in terms of like the ideas of natural beauty, because it is shot in Glasgow. And I've also been to Glasgow and you probably have too. And Glasgow is not beautiful. And, uh, and there is no natural beauty in this film. And I almost, it's almost, if you had to guess, I think you would think that this film was made before local hero because not just because local hero is a better film, but it's well, actually because local hero is a better film, but he doesn't uh, really sort of exploit that those sort of ideas about, about nature or just what even really what Scotland has to give. I mean, there's nothing in this about it that makes you think like that Scotland has some particularity that makes you want to like go there or learn more about it. It's just a guy, like, it's just a guy. He could live anywhere. It could be a story about a guy in Cleveland, you know? Yeah. Um, so it's, I don't know, like for me that that's sort of, but there is one, the, the sort of element of continuity between the two is sort of these unmoored guys in their thirties driving fancy cars, which is also very eighties to me. Right. It just makes yeah. me think of like, well, actually it makes me think of like dire straits, which is also perfect because Mark Knopfler did the soundtrack for both films, which we should, we should actually also mention as well. Yeah. Um, but, but that's the through line is sort of the, the, uh, the, the yuppie without, with no place to go and no identity and, uh, but a really nice car. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, so Alan Dickey Bird is the host of this really corny radio show, like really obnoxious uh, 
radio throw, you know, the throws on the station are really irritating and his, he's doing like dad jokes left and right. And, uh, Forsyth, the idea for this movie that Forsyth had was that he wanted to make this movie about a local DJ at a time where all of a sudden, um, radio stations in Scotland were starting to develop local identities. Like you could have a Glasgow drive you know, morning drive DJ and a late, you know, so, and that, that his voice is the connective tissue for the whole city. Like they all know who he is, that he's not famous outside of Glasgow, but in Glasgow, he's a minor celebrity. Um, but he's giving people a sort of a sense of identity. I detect a real Preston Sturges vibe to a lot of the things that's that Forsyth did the way that both local here on comfort and joy are, have all this silliness to them and all these tiny little roles with very distinct character actors, like people make impressions on very short amounts of time. And, and, and these really dotty uh, movie ideas, like the plot of comfort and joy is about this radio DJ who gets involved in this turf war between these two rival Italian families in Glasgow fighting over the ice cream market. <laughs> so there's this turf war going on with ice cream trucks and uh they're vandalizing each other's uh uh trucks and it, the the two rival families in this movie are Mr. McCool and the upstart Mr. Bunny. Right. And and, he, and the character only refers the the uh, Dicky character only refers to them as such which leads everybody around him to think that he's lost his mind. Yeah. Now that Alan is unmoored and is all of a sudden alone, uh, he he starts to develop. A, he's the guy in Glasgow who provides people with a sense of identity, but he has no real sense of his own identity. And so he starts to create one by getting mixed up in this ridiculous turf war over ice cream trucks where, um, you know, he finds a sense of purpose in ending the war. So he's on the radio trying to contact the gangs by broadcasting coded messages, talking to Mr. Bunny on the radio. And his manager, his, the manager of the station is actually thinks that he's gone insane. <laughs> and like, right. he has to talk to a psychiatrist about Mr. Bunny. <laughs> right. So what's so funny about comfort and joy is that um, this ice cream war that seems silly in the movie and is played for laughs is actually based on a real thing. There was really an ice cream war in Glasgow in the early eighties. There was this criminal element that was operating within the ice cream van trade. They were selling drugs and stolen goods from ice cream trucks clandestinely in Glasgow. It was like a racket. And during this war, there was violence and intimidation attacks on drivers, raids on each other's ice cream vans. The fun fact is that Peter Capaldi comes from, uh, a family that was in the ice cream business. And he was the one who told Bill Forsyth this story. But Forsyth, when he was telling him the story, Forsyth thought that the war was over whose ice cream was better. He didn't quite understand what Capaldi was talking about. And he thought his misunderstanding of the explanation of the war was funnier than the actual story. So he made it his version. So, I, when you sent me the articles about this actually, or the Wikipedia article about this actually having happened, I thought to myself, it was very brave of him to make the film. <laughs> I'm surprised he wasn't worried that he would have been uh, somehow engulfed by these by these very violent uh, encounters. But, yeah. but his surrogate is in the movie, like um, because Dickie Bird is obviously supposed to be Bill Forsyth, and he witnesses like these attacks. And one day he comes home, comes to his car to find that all these ice cream cones have been stuck all over the seats of his nice upholstered car. <laughs> right. 
Yeah. <laughs> so it's this crazy idea. And one other fun fact is that um, in the video game uh, Grand Theft Auto Vice City, they have um, one of the missions that you have to run in this video game is to uh, drive around in an ice cream truck selling drugs to like make money. And the video game was developed in Edinburgh. So it is clearly uh, a joke That's from funny. the Scottish game developers over this legendary ice cream war. That's funny. I, wow. And you, um, when you shared with this with me, I, I'll be honest, I, as you know, I worked on drunk history and I thought to myself, man, if I had found this story for drunk history, we would have, we would have done it. It was so good. It was really, I mean, we're the show to go on. I would say that's prime. It was really the sort of prime drunk history material. Uh, and I'm, I'm sorry that I never knew about it until now. Well, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe <laughs> I uh, did it better. It doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so yeah, Comfort and Joy, a slight and uh, agreeable, funny movie with a very uh, sad undercurrent running throughout. And uh, uh, it has a sort of happy ending, but it also has a sort of tossed off happy ending. Like it just sort of just ends. Yeah, the resolution is not that amazing. Is Again, like it's not, a, it's not the, the level of the screenplay does not reached local hero it's not a it's not as thoughtful it's not as interesting of a resolution but eh, whatever it's it's an enjoyable watch i wouldn't like you know i'd I'd watch local hero before i'd watch that so if people are making a choice (laughs) so despite it being a commercial letdown it was still a critical success and it led foresight to once again work with david putnam and this was going to be um his american debut and uh, to tell you a little bit about uh, what was going on in Hollywood at this point, Putnam, uh, he parlayed his success in Chariots of Fire and the Killing Fields and the Mission uh, and Local Hero. Um, Columbia Pictures was in a lot of trouble at the time. There was all these scandals about their uh, previous uh, management. And and Columbia decided to actually go look for a new uh, CEO and uh, chief instead of just hiring another failed studio chief from another studio to go and look for somebody else, something else. And they decided to go for David Putnam, who was, um, you know, he was a golden boy in the eighties. Like he, everything he touched turned to gold. And so in a bold decision, they made him the new CEO. But as soon as he got there, he pissed everyone in Hollywood off because he was promising radical change he was promising that Columbia would distribute international films and not concentrate on Hollywood, but to like, you know, make movies in Zagreb and make movies in Budapest and, you know, bring international filmmakers because what drove Putnam crazy was the runaway budgets of Hollywood movies, the star salaries, these gigantic budgets. He was like, why would we pay a Hollywood director $3 million to make a movie when I can get a Hungarian director to make one for a hundred thousand dollars? You know, like he was he was really into widening uh, the scale of Columbia's output to reflect the world. Um, And he was determined to create a more bold and cost effective production slate. One of the first movies that he uh, okayed was Bill Forsyth's Housekeeping. But he was getting in so much shit in Hollywood. He got into huge fights with Bill Cosby and Bill Murray. He was dead set against Columbia making an expensive sequel to Ghostbusters. He was really, really pissed off that he had inherited Ishtar. And (laughs) they say that um, he helped to sabotage the film's release by leaking all these stories about the troubled production. 
because he, well, he basically wanted Ishtar to fail so that he could say, this is the kind of stuff the previous regime was making. We have to get away from movies like this. He was so mad at Warren Beatty. Um, Chariots of Fire uh, beat Reds at the Oscars, and but Putnam was really angry that Warren Beatty won Best Director. You know, like he was just he was just so mad at this the Hollywood system, and so and in he was also really mad at Bill Cosby because there was this movie called Leonard Part Six that was already <laughs> costing twenty two million dollars, and Putnam actually tried to cancel the movie. The so the last thing you do in Hollywood in the mid eighties is get the Coca-Cola pitch man, Coca-Cola owned Columbia pictures mad at him, you know? So. Wow. $22 million was a lot of money for a film. In, in the eighties. Yeah. A con- just like a random comedy. It was like a, sci- it's sort of like a sci-fi thing, isn't it? I kind of, have a it's vague... a wacky spy comedy. Yeah. I, oh, right. Oh, I should, I don't, you know what... I don't want to ever look at Bill Cosby again. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to actually, I don't want to spend too much time thinking about it to be honest. <laughs> But that is fascinating. And I do have a very vague memory of that name of that film, but yeah. lost, lost to history, thankfully. But anyway, so yeah, so Putnam was running Columbia Pictures for one year. Uh, the, the bombs that were greenlit by the producers before him, the studio execs before him, went off on his watch, like Ishtar bombed. And uh, Putnam was uh, held responsible in some circles for making sure that Ishtar bombed pissing off Dustin Hoffman, pissing off Warren Beatty, uh, pissing off Bill Murray by not wanting to do Ghostbusters 2. Or, you know, well, he, uh, he was, uh, he just he just really made enemies really quickly. So Putnam was fired in September. And one of the very first things the new regime at Columbia did was to start work up on Ghostbusters 2. Like they greenlit it within weeks of, of Putnam's ouster. Um and there were things that Putnam uh, could take credit for that that nobody wanted to give him credit for, like The Last Emperor won Best Picture uh, yeah. later in 1987. It was a movie that was that Columbia picked up for American distribution. Putnam doesn't deserve all the credit for that, but Hollywood certainly didn't want to credit him for anything. The drag of all this is that David Putnam was gone. He was Bill Forsythe's guy. He was his defender. And he was gone in September. Housekeeping was released in November, and Columbia Pictures didn't want to do David Putnam any favors. They didn't want to uh, help anything that David Putnam had gotten off the ground. Uh, Nobody was interested. So Housekeeping was released in like two theaters in November. It had a very slow rollout. It didn't do all that well, and it basically closed very quickly. It made something like $60,000. That's incredible. Um, it went to VHS a few months after it came out theatrically, but it was never released on DVD. It only made its Blu-ray debut like three years ago in the UK. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's it's actually quite amazing. I wonder if we're the first podcast to talk about it. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I just have no exposure to this film uh, prior to you asking me to, to watch it. So I, um, I'm very grateful. I, it's really a beautiful, beautiful film. I think it's uh, one of the best movies of the of the eighties, and 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 I think that it's actually like criminal that this movie was handled so badly. Forsyth said, "I don't think it was released; it escaped for a bit." Ah, uh, you know, amazing, right, right. And 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 here's another point that Forsyth made. He said, "I think that critical reaction was fine, but people really go and see what they're told to go and see through advertising, and they didn't spend any money advertising it or promoting it because David had left." 
So it was just orphaned. Um, but it's a remarkable film. Uh, let's talk about housekeeping. I mean, I think, I think some of that, and I ha- again, I have not read the book, uh, but I think some of that is, is owed to the novel, right? I mean, it is this apparently this incredible work of literary fiction and the voiceover, which uh, it goes th- throughout the film, uh, I assume is taken directly from the book and it is um, a deeply poetic and evocative uh, and um, the turns of phrase in it are often uh, sort of breathtaking, I think. So, you know, but I, I do think Forsyth, and I think this primarily because of Local Hero was the right person to make this film because again, it is a, a film about uh, about the people being subsumed by the natural world and quite literally in this film actually because there is a recurrent theme um, about a train that uh, goes goes underwater into this frozen lake and they come back to that over and over. But it's also about the the world of this sort of like. Uh, mountainous environment that these women live in in this small town in Idaho, right? I've, I've sort of jumped ahead, but I, I think that this is so important. And I, I think it's underscored by the opening of the film where the narration, and this is the only point in the film where a, a male character gets anything more than a few seconds on the screen. But the, the first five minutes, very notably, are a narration about the patriarch of this family and how he grew up in the plains. Uh, and he, when he learned about mountains, he had never seen mountains. He became obsessed with mountains and he, he painted mountains and he, and they show his paintings. They show him as a child imagining mountains. And then he, the first, as soon as he was old enough, he left and he found a place in the mountains and he settled down. And that is so significant uh, because then the rest of this film is about these women living in this particular environment. And it is so beautiful and it is not dissimilar in some ways from the uh, sort of green mountainous terrain of local hero. Mm-hmm. Um but it really, it sort of traffics in those same, again, I'll use this word again, it's maybe very annoying. I, I, I mean, I sort of am debating whether it's more like transcendentalist or more romantic in the literary sense, because it really is about sort of like big nature uh, and how nature can be so overwhelming that you don't actually really need human emotion because you have nature. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it's so it's so stunning that it just, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I just found myself completely taken by, by especially the elements around, around water and around the the sort of the, this recurrent idea about the, the frozen lake. But um, again, I think I started this rant because I was talking about the, the novel. I think that is somewhat owed to the novel, but you can really see the the reason that Forsyth of all people had to make this film. Yeah, it was a passion project for Forsyth. He, w- he was directed to the novel by a unnamed actress who told him to read the book and he was fixated on it. He apparently got a couple of copies of the book and, and made uh, and cut out all this stuff and laid out the the narrative of the movie by slicing and dicing the actual book and sort of rebuilding it as a, as a treatment, um, th- uh, you know, and deciding what, what is filmable and what isn't. Cause that's the other thing that's, there's a lot of um, visual poetry in this movie that is as close as Forsyth could come to, uh, you know, depicting things that happen in the book in a sort of magical way and not in a literal way. Yes, I, you know, there's like a whole series of scenes where they're living in a flooded house and the water comes up to their knees and they're just sort of going about their lives in this house. And actually it made me think, and I don't think this was a, this is like a reference to it, but it made me think of another uh, moment like that in film that I always found very, that I still find very profound, which is in the, uh, in Synecdoche, New York, when they're living in a house that's always on fire, right? Mm-hmm. And it's sort of this idea of sort of um, your home being, 
consumed by an element, but you sort of trying to go about your business as if everything is normal uh, and how, um, oh God, I, I'm having a hard time putting it into words, but it's so unsettling, uh, but it's but also sort of beautiful. And um, I'll just sort of, like think about it for a minute, but these, these things like water or heat that we like rely on so deeply, but are also adversarial and that you don't want your house to be flooded or to be on fire. Uh, and it's just, um, but it's, it reminded me of that actually, which is another sort of set of images that I really love. The other thing that's interesting about uh, housekeeping is that the original plan wouldn't have been as good a movie as this version turned out to be. Forsyth originally planned on making it with Diane Keaton in the lead. Oh, thank God that didn't happen. Jesus Christ. And it was going to be produced <laughs> by Canon, by Golan and Globus, back when they were trying to make art house movies, like oh, wow. the Schlockmeisters. Um, <sighs> D- when Diane Keaton bailed out on the movie to go do Baby Boom. <laughs> And yeah, I remember once, that movie too. Yeah. Once she left, Cannon left, and uh, Forsyth wound up talking David Putnam into doing it, and uh, he wound up with a slightly better budget, and he wound up with Christine Lottie as the lead, who is so good in this film. It's a terrific performance. Surprisingly, not uh, awarded anything. She's so good in this film. There's a lot of gravity and tragedy in her performance. And I don't think that Diane Keaton, Diane Keaton a lot of people love Diane Keaton, whatever, but like, I don't think, I, I think her like quirky femininity or femininity would have like, you know, overshadowed some, maybe some of that um, really important sadness in that character, uh, which is so important because it sort of echoes the sort of tragedy of this family uh, over time. So um, I thought she was just, really fantastic and uh again it's very sad that her career didn't like so many women in the 80s that she sort of aged out um Mm -hmm. and then it was over for her uh so well she's still lottie still does a lot of television and and we we see her a lot but you know that's true she's a network a network star yeah right that's she doesn't network yeah Mm -hmm. she's i'm pretty sure i've seen her on the good wife and stuff Right. That makes sense. I mean, yeah, that's fine. She works. That's fine. But she, cause she could have been a movie actress, I think. Yeah. She, um, yeah. she got Oscar nominated for swing shift a few years earlier. And I heard that, um, that Goldie Hawn actually had the movie recut because Lottie had stolen the movie from her. So, <laughs> so they sort of did some re-editing to make Lottie less, uh, less commanding on screen, but she still got an Oscar nomination for that performance. Yeah. Uh, oh. And she was a, a big enough name when this movie was made, but it's a remarkable performance because she, she seems to me in this movie to be like a woman that another time would have accommodated it, like that she would have had an easier life in a different era, but a woman like her in the fifties, um, you know, she's, she's got problems. Like she, she seemed to be a sort of a transient person but she what what she is more than anything is a nonconformist and there's no room for people like that uh, a woman like that in that time she is there is elements of mental illness in her character but she's a high functioning mentally ill person who um, is able to manage her illness when she has to um, to a certain extent uh, but you're right I mean I think it it is about sort of 
non, it's, it's certainly a film about conformity and nonconformity because one of the two sisters of these, these children that she, her nieces that she becomes the, the ward of essentially uh, becomes obsessed with um, uh, conforming essentially because this woman is so nonconformist and she's so disappointed in this and wants normalcy. So and craves normalcy in contrast to this woman's eccentricity. Um, but you're right. Absolutely. A character would still have had problems in other eras, but would have, uh, been able to sort of go about those things undetected. And then she's immediately suspect, um, to everybody around her in this, in this context. And, and including us, like there's like, there are so many parts in this movie where you're fearful because of, uh, her, you know, her, she is not well, like there are, like there's things that she just doesn't pick up on and notice. And she's, uh, I mean, before we get too carried away on the movie, I mean, do you want to uh, explain the basic situation of this film? Sure. I mean, I, I think that that's actually very important to, to what you're talking about. Right. I mean, I think the film follows uh, these two young girls who uh, lose their mother. Who, I mean, it's not a spoiler alert. She, she kills herself in one of the most sort of understated and sort of non-emotional suicide scenes you've ever seen. She just drives into the same lake, I believe it's the same lake that we learn later on that the train went into and that they, that they believe that they may have, that the main characters may have fallen into at the end. So this lake that literally is sort of just like this sort of like, you know, subsume, subsuming this family and pulling this family back into the earth um, or back into it's the bottom of the lake or whatever, uh, something more poetic than that. And so these young girls, uh, the, the mother before she kills herself drops them off at her, her mother's house at their grandmother's house. She raises them until she passes away. Then another set of elderly aunts come and raise them until they can't handle it anymore. And then finally this, this woman who's the mother's sister, their aunt uh, comes in. So you, there's already like to take care of them. There's already uh, sort of two layers of tension. One, there's a great deal of anxiety around the fact that these girls have continuously lost uh, the only adult support in their lives. They don't know their father. They don't even know his name. Uh, and you really feel for them. It's very, I think it would be intense even for a non-parent. For me, the scene where the mother leaves them is very, uh, I would not be able to watch it again. And it's not even emotional, but you know what's happening. It's very, very upsetting. Uh, and you are so fearful for them the whole time that they're going to lose their caretakers. Uh, so there's that level of anxiety. And then the fact that their mother killed themselves, you know that there's mental illness in this family and you know that there's a tendency to abandon children in this family. So you are constantly worried that the Christine Lottie character uh, is going to leave them and you feel their ang their anxiety about that too. So I think um, even though, again, much like Local Hero, it's very understated, uh, it's also very profoundly affecting and upsetting. Uh, and I felt very worried <laughs> the entire film <laughs> for everybody in it. Uh, yes. So, you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like when Christine Lottie arrives as their Aunt Sylvie, um, you know, she's, she, we can tell that she's like, she felt to me like sort of a modern woman, but in a time that could never possibly understand anybody like this. Um, a woman not defined by a man, like she, uh, she was married at one point and in these increasingly hostile discussions between uh, Lottie and her two uh, nieces, one of whom is kind of kind of wants to be her and the other who kind of absolutely does not want to be her and is just sees her as this terrible cautionary example. Uh, and she really starts to really turn the screws on Aunt Sylvie. Like, where's your husband? What, whatever happened to him? You know, like she, she wants, she doesn't like the answers and, um, 
and she what she wants more than anything is is security and normalcy uh she's never had uh and and conformity in a very conformist era this movie takes place in the 50s and uh and she uh is she's right too because like there is something uh, um in unstable and dangerous about the Lati character when we first see her uh she goes out for a walk and they follow her over to the train station like she's going to catch the next train out of town and then she says uh well i guess i'll stay for a while sort of thing um but you know the lights are always out in the house and uh when they're at school uh aunt sylvie goes for like long walks at one point they start playing hooky from school and like hanging out by the lake and then they see aunt sylvie walking around but she's not looking for them it's because this is what she does with her days she goes for long walks by herself in the woods like you know she's she's not well either um, she has no maternal impulse i mean she doesn't seem to understand that she's a guardian of their safety and they sense that right that's sort of very essential quality of a mother uh she sort of i think senses that she's there supposed to be with them uh but anything above and beyond that uh is not really that interesting to her. So she doesn't really care that they stop going to school. And this is actually troubling to them as it should be. Um, yeah. There's that wonderful narration where they're talking about how they were very disappointed that she wasn't mad at them when, right, when, which, when they finally got in some minor trouble, like she, the voiceover at one point, she says like, we're basically waiting to be caught and basically begging to be caught and nobody caught us. <laughs> They're trying to sort of construct some like motherliness, you know, they're trying to sort of get her to, to sort of act in the role of, of a mother and she just won't do it. Um, which isn't to say that she doesn't love them. I think that she, she does uh, love them, but um, yeah. But then there's this sort of folie adieu stuff that starts developing because Ruthie, the, uh, the more uh, vulnerable one who uh, is more, um, uh, what am I trying to say? She's, she's more compliant in a way. Like she, she likes whatever attention that she can get and she wants this all to work out. And she finds uh, aunt Sylvie to be a fascinating and interesting person. Like she's sort of falling under her sway. Um, she's willing to go along with aunt Sylvie on all these uh, things that are, you know, eyebrow raising, like going, uh, you know, going on a boat uh, out to this Island and staying out all night. And then like getting in a train, with, uh, you know, a, 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 what do you call it? A cattle car to go back home. Like, like this is the life of aunt Sylvie before she took on this responsibility. She's like a vagabond and you get the sense that this is Ruth's fate. Like she could wind up being like a hobo, just like her aunt and, and the other girl, um, Lucille, wants normalcy wants normality she kind of snitches at one point like she basically uh lets the the good people in town know about what's going on with aunt sylvie and ruth like she's she basically is no longer her sister anymore she's like an informant yeah that's very upsetting i mean it's actually really interesting to me that you read it that way that she sort of came under the influence of her i sort of read it like there were these two sisters who much like their mother and their aunt uh had these very uh, you know, one of them essentially is the mother, the, mm -hmm. the one who seeks conformity. And one of them is just sort of intrinsically, inherently, genetically, whatever, the same as her aunt. And I sort of just saw her as, uh, because I think even as a child, she's sort of quiet and, and like even before maybe the Sylvie character shows up and she's very uncomfortable uh, sort of 
carrying on sort of like normal sort of aspects of like she doesn't like wearing dresses you know they, they would never like this is not a movie about like gender or sexuality so I don't think they're like they're implying anything about like sort of what but but just that she doesn't want to wear a dress in the 50s is obviously sort of outside mm-hmm. of uh, the norm uh and so I I thought that what was happening there was that she really was she's essentially going to be like Sylvie and even though this uh, the other character wants to be like the mother. Let, recall, like the mother is the one who kills herself at the beginning of the film. So who turns out to be the happier person, right? Yeah. So it's actually not the, uh, and, and the mother looks very conformist. Like she looks like a perfect, beautiful woman of the time. And yet she is a, obviously d- as depressed as you can be. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. actually sort of a tragedy uh, for the sister who who seeks uh, conformity. And I think it's very interesting that she ends up moving in with the home economics teacher at the high school, which is sort yeah. of like the very, the like sort of ideal typical, uh, the, the, the actual like literal teacher of conformity yeah. uh, takes her in. And the last voice you hear in the film is actually this girl's voice. And I think you, you sort of know that her, her path is one of probably sort of like darkness and tragedy and the, and the character that's more like Sylvie probably faces a challenging road, but will ultimately probably be a more happy or self-actualized human being. I like to think. Yeah. I mean, the movie leaves it open at the end, but I mean, you know, um, we see a lot of um, spooky stuff about aunt Sylvie, like about her headspace, like, you know, um, the hoarding, we see like all these newspapers piling up and all the mysterious cats that are everywhere in the house. Like <laughs> I like the fact that you never see the same cat twice. <laughs> and uh, that first really you see something about me that I didn't even notice that as a problem. <laughs> like, I just was like, Oh yeah. cats. <laughs> I just remember seeing a cat in the background and then like a couple of cats. And then one, one point Lucille leaves and opens the door and like three cats come in. <laughs> <laughs> She's she's got all these uh, gold and silver can collection like she's like got all but they're the really heightened color like they're like pristine silver and gold cans. Um, Right. And and I just started cringing for the last half hour of the movie. Like I was so worried that um, they were going to get separated uh, when the when the townsfolk start to intervene. Like it, it felt like this sort of almost Soviet like surveillance on these, on these young women. Um, the way that like, you know, the, like uh, at one point, uh, Christine Lottie answers the door and these three m- matrons are there at the door. And one of them says, we went to high school together, you know, but they're like so distant from each other now. Like, like these matrons are just have nothing to do with, uh, with the aunt Sylvie character who is uh, a modern woman. That's the way I think of her as, as a modern woman and how many modern women in, uh, in that time had their lives ruined for not conforming. Yeah. And it just feels very cruel too, because these, these women in this town had several opportunities to step in and take care of these girls when they lost caretakers. Right. And they only sort of started to care when they were actually just sort of offended by the public behavior of the, of the caretaker, I think uh, is how I understood what was happening. So like they got, they got offended and interventionist when it looked like they were living their own lives as opposed to not worrying about, you know, it's not none of our business sort of thing. Like, there was that other spooky scene where um, where Aunt Sylvie and Ruthie are, you know, quickly trying to sort of regain the image of normality by r- grabbing all the newspapers from within the house and burning them to get like basically disposing of the evidence and making the house look presentable. And that's still not good enough. Like they, they have the lights on late at night and the local sheriff 
comes over to see what's going on and wants to see Ruthie and, you know, basically like forcing them to explain themselves. Right. You get it. It is sort of like, uh, right. Like, I mean, you just sort of get the sense that there, there's no way they can win. Uh, they, there's not that, and there's no way they can behave that won't feed into the narrative. So they essentially have no choice to do what they do in the end, which is to leave. But I actually didn't see that coming. I didn't, I did not know that that would happen. I was, and I, uh, was amazed by it because it was such a, uh, satisfying resolution, I think, to feel that they had somehow broken free from this, this sort of horrible place. I know, but, but it's so, um, I don't know. It's a, this movie has a sort of Rorschach test to it because when they set fire to the house and like go walking on the rails across this bridge where the horrible train crash had happened and we just see them disappearing into the landscape, uh, they're going to go ride the rails and go to Portland. Like, you know, it doesn't seem like a bright future for Ruth. That's also true. Right. Yeah. That I, that I agree with. It is very, very, very frightening when they cross the bridge. And I have especially like being sort of cars and trains are extra scary to me. And like, you know, I'm, I like my son, I still carry him across parking lots because I'm yeah. just terrified of moving things. So uh, they, and there's this a lot of tension built up around this particular bridge. Um, obviously it's the same bridge that the train has went off of in a previous generation. So you're right. It's a little, it is a bit sad, but, and or a bit, frightening although you see the lightness of them i think for very for a long time which is interesting because it is is pitch black so Mm -hmm. there's something there's something in the fact that he shows you them as light because you wouldn't really be able to see that that lightness they sort of become a flickering sort of white presence so you know that they make it across which is i think really important if they had left it without knowing if they made it across i would have been pretty upset yeah um i did read though in the book that the townspeople do come to the conclusion that they've fallen in and they don't ever look for them uh, and that, and I think they sort of, they sort of imply that in the film yeah. too, but, um, but they do escape, at least that they escape together. And you think there, there isn't another adult that probably is capable of taking care of her. So, um, it's not going to be an easy life, uh, but maybe it's better than what would have happened to them. It's very, it's very sad. And then also I think one of the saddest and most affecting elements of the film is when their relationship disintegrates. So these sisters are really the only comfort they have, the only friends that they have. And uh, when the more conformist sister essentially rejects uh, the less, the least, the less conformist sister, it's, it's almost unbearable. I would say it's really, it's, it's portrayed in a way that actually felt very true to me as a way that like adolescent girls interact with one another. Mm-hmm. I felt uh, deep sort of uh, empathy for uh, I don't have a sister that rejected me or a sister at all, but like no. the sort of anxiety of, of rejection uh, experienced by the, the, the less conformist sister. Um, and then just that, that they've lost that uh, the only person who was a constant in their lives is really hard to take. Um, but again, as I said, with local hero, like he does not hit you over the head with this. Like no. Forsyth, it's very, quiet it's very understated but the emotions are huge (laughs) but he trusts you to figure that out you do not need sentimentality to understand what's going on in this film you don't need anybody to speak it out loud and that is so refreshing (laughs) because i don't want to watch a film i don't want to watch the hollywood version of this film yeah no i i mean it's just it and 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 not only that but it's such a good movie in terms of filmmaking like 
it the 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 feeling of time and place like we talk a lot about hangout movies <laughs> in this day and age like where you just get to hang with some people for a couple of hours this movie has major hangout vibes like you really do feel um like you know the house that they live in and, right. and stuff like that that's um it's noteworthy to say that uh, Bill Forsyth is married to the woman who did the art direction on this movie that is pretty he's, amazing. She's yeah. been his art director on a few on a few films, but like it, it just everything looks and feels right in this film. It was mostly shot in Alberta and in British Columbia. Oh, I was going to actually ask. It, it really does feel feel like small town fifties kind of feel to it on a very uh, on a on a reasonable budget. You know, just some art direction. There's also that that um, scene that I that I wanted to mention to you. Uh, that I really thought was, was interesting where, where Christine Lottie goes out for a walk and she's walking around by herself and the girls are following her. Um, Cause they don't know where she goes. And she walks past this, um, this uh, appliance store and it's got all these uh, f- vacuum cleaners all laid out. And then the storekeeper comes out with a, with a little cardboard stand up uh, with uh, something about best thing you can get for a little lady is a new washer and dryer. And uh, she just laughs almost like a punk rock uh, attitude towards this man, like this conformist expectation of what women's roles are. uh, That is, this is what I mean about Lottie's character being like from another, it's almost like she came from a time machine (laughs) into the wrong decade. Like, you know, there's room for people like this in 20 years, but not in 1954. I mean, I guess I, the scene that I really love that I was mentioning to you earlier is this, there's a number of flashbacks where they keep coming back to this motif about the train that went in the ice. And there's this really wonderful, but a very dark uh, scene where there's a flashback to the day that the train went under the ice and no one in the town really knows what to do because you couldn't rescue everybody understood that everybody was dead who was in the train uh, and they didn't know what to do. So the whole town just came out to the ice and some people brought food, which they sort of knew was ridiculous. And some people made fires and other people brought supplies. But everybody was just sort of hanging out like in this sort of like weird tableau of like waiting for people that they knew were never going to like emerge from this like sort of like chasm of like ice. And uh, and then they have this conversation or I think it's in the narr- it's like in the narrative, but it's sort of recounting the conversations that the people would were talking about what it was like when the train went under. And it's, I mean, that must, it comes from the book. It's so clear, but uh, it's such a beautiful, and I won't try to paraphrase it, but um, this sort of a, this debate about, did it really crash through and was it set in or did it glide into the water? And it's sort of this like evocative discussion of like the people on the, on the train as if they would have experienced riding through the cold water. I mean, it's like, it's so, it's like fantastical, right? It's like magical realism almost, right? This idea mm-hmm. of this sort of train running underwater and, mm-hmm. um, and again, it is that I keep coming back to this in this conversation about both these films, but it is about being completely subsumed by the natural world and by uh, the the sublime, essentially, that it is so beautiful and so terrifying and it will kill you, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it is so awe-inspiring. Um, and that scene is just so amazing because it sort of is like the, the helplessness of man in the face of these uh, sort of... And, and sort of modernity, right? This sort of train and 
uh, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's a short scene, but it's so powerful. And when I think when I remember this film, that's, that'll be the scene that I remember probably more than anything else. The scene that I never forgot was that final shot of the, of the two of them walking over the bridge and into the night. And we just see them and see them and see them and see them. And then we don't see them like they're gone. Yeah. That's it's haunting really. It's a, but yeah, yeah. it's, it's a movie that uh, I can't say enough about how good it is. Um, yeah, and actually, just I, I think we were talking about the people that it probably influenced. I think that the, you don't, we don't realize how many. It's a sort of film that people like think only get got made in the last ten years, but actually, like somebody was making it many, many years ago, mm-hmm. um, because it is so quiet and so interesting. Um, I got uh, while watching it again for the first time in a long time. I realized that it has to be a huge influence on Kelly Reichardt. I, totally. I mean, you know, I think the first time I came on your show, we talked about First Cow. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, did you ever see it? Not yet. I don't think it's a far cry from First Cow. I mean, it is sort of about like humanity in the Pacific Northwest and trying to like live. I mean, it actually is sort of like that because there are these sort of people who are like out of their time and place and can't fit into this like harsh, they're sort of, you know, in some ways like at peace with the harsh wilderness, but still can't fit into like the human society that they exist in. And I don't know. I mean, I really see that in her films and this sort of like love letter to that, to that part of the country and sort of that, that environment. Um, Very Wendy and Lucy. And just, yeah, I, I think the sort of attention to the detail of the, of the women characters is, is really important. One of the things that I was confused about was who was older. Like generally in a film, like the taller one is older, but I think that it was reversed in this, right? I don't know. I I took Ruth as the older sister and that, that Lucille was the younger sister, but but that's only based on height. I just Right, but Lucille was more, do- she was more domineering. She called the shots in the relationship. So you yeah. felt like she was sort of older in terms of the, the personality, right? Yeah, but, but, um, but... I think of her as the sort of the bratty little sister who, who had to grow up fast as opposed to the Ruth character that um, the, the, the younger sister really wants to avoid the fate of what seems to be the family, this family that seems to be racked by, um, you know, being uh, unmoored and, and having mental problems. Like I thought that it was very hard to watch a couple of the scenes where, um, Lucille was just being so questioning and, and nasty to oh. Sylvie. Like I, I, I understood where she was coming from. This is another movie that doesn't really have major antagonists, but um, you know, beyond the sort of the townsfolk meddling and stuff, like I didn't think Lucille was a bad person for what she did, but I thought the way she did it was not very nice. Oh, she's as cruel as a teenage girl can be. It's very, yeah. it's very painful, and it's more painful given the fact that they have no mother, <laughs> right? Yeah. And they have no, they have no family. So, uh, it is, it is a very, very hard uh, set of interactions to to take in. And because it sets in, like they both seem like the same kind of girl at the beginning, but by the end, they're very different. And and uh, it takes something to sort of just like cut yourself off from your own fam. Yeah. I mean, her sadness is valid too, though. I mean, she, even though she's very cruel, like she's, she's trying so hard and she also doesn't, you know, there's a whole, it's like three or four scenes about her trying to teach herself to sew and how hard it is and that she doesn't realize it's going to be hard and it's so frustrating and it's so heartbreaking for her. And I mean, I guess there's sort of like a gender thing there about like, if you had a mother, she'd teach you how to sew or this character believes that, you know, that a mother would have taught her how to sew. Um, 
Uh, but it's just, it's, it's tragic for that character as cruel as she is. Like her, her tragedy is, is palpable and and you feel for her as well. So again, like, I don't know, you know, we talked about this a little bit when we talked about, um, I don't know, Ben Affleck, alcoholic, what was that movie called? The Way Back. The Way, Way Back. Back. Uh, but I do find now as a, now that I've had a child, I think I find movies where children are vulnerable, like more, even more upsetting than I might've before. They're very hard for me to watch. Yeah. So, uh, I think, you know, it, it's just as upsetting as a parent to see this, but I think anybody with a heart uh, would be upset by this, by what happens in this film. I think, yeah, I think it's a work of great empathy. Like I, I, I yeah. really think that, um, that Forsyth has a real, um, a real heart and that like that like i think that um it's very matter of fact and i think very mm-hmm. sensitive and aware of how hard it is to be a woman coming from a male director yeah yeah and i, I yes and it, it's a film about well actually it's interesting because it's a film that right now nobody would let a male director make right it would be like a to really transgression to hire a man to make this film mm-hmm. uh which I am not of that school, so I believe that, you know, you, I believe a man could make this film because a man did make this film. I don't believe that you have to be a woman to have made this film. You may have had to be a woman to write this book um, because yeah. he he does owe so much to this writer. Yeah. Um, but uh, you don't you don't get a this sort of critique about like the male gaze or something like you don't you don't get this in this in this film. That's not a problem here um, from my perspective. It is about women surviving, though, and and. Like I said, there's almost no male presence in this film, but you don't even really realize that yeah, until the end. You're right. Like the, the the sort of the sheriff that's coming around and throwing his weight around is like he has probably the most dialogue of any male in this movie. And you know, he's only in the about, last 10 minutes. Yeah, the stuff about the grandfather at the beginning and the stuff about the sheriff at the end. It's sort of like they're sort of bookended by these sort of men who ultimately do have some some amount of like control over their fate in terms of like determining where they can be (laughs) and what place they'll exist in. But um, beyond that, they're not in their lives in any way. No, it's, it's a movie that you will be thinking about for a long time, Ursula. Like if, if you're anything like me, it, uh, it it haunted me for a long, long time. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I think in talking about these three films together, it's almost like local hero is sort of like at the center of like the Venn diagram or something, you know, there's like, there's local hero. Again, it was the first one of the three, but it sort of contains elements of the other two, you know, it contains multitudes or at least two. (laughs) Um, uh, It it has the, uh, the sort of the environmental and um, sort of ideas of sort of nature and humanity and that are so important in, housekeeping and then it has this sort of the, the characters that he sort of develops in, in local hero and the sort of sympathy for this like lone eighties unmoored guy, dude, dude, you know, dudes rock, <laughs> Scottish dudes rock guy yeah. um, <laughs> uh, that exists in comfort and joy. So it was yeah. a perfect trio of films really to watch. Um, uh, well, so I'll tell you where Forsyth went from here briefly is that he made a film called breaking in, with Burt Reynolds and the screenplay was written by John sales. I don't know why I've never seen it, but I guess I should. I heard it's all right. Um, but Forsyth's Hollywood career ended hard with this film called being human, which was in 1994 with Robin Williams. This is the, the, the one liner I got from the IMDb. It said 
One man must learn the meaning of courage across four lifetimes, centuries apart. Oh, Jesus. It takes place over four time frames, epochs that are uh, supposed to tell the story of mankind. And Robin Williams is the through line. Like he's in all four stories, but there's various cast members and stuff. But um, it was basically like Forsyth suddenly having a huge budget, $40 million. Um, But the movie was very, very slow. And Forsyth's excuse for that was, well, life is slow. A lot of life takes a long time sort of thing. So the movie uh, added up to being 160 minutes long. Warner Brothers took 40 minutes out. They added voiceover and they added a happy ending in an attempt to salvage this production. Um, Forsyth has disowned the movie. That's another reason why I've never seen it is because I just, I don't want to see Bill Forsyth being like make being forced to do things because <laughs> he's yeah. such a free spirit as a filmmaker. I, I, in a way I just never wanted to see a movie that he disowned. I just would not want to see it. Yeah. I think that makes sense. Right. But it bombed hard. It, it made $5 million. It cost 40. I had a huge star in it. Yeah. And, uh, right. and Forsyth also said that uh, he liked re- working with Robin Williams, but they did uh, almost all the takes. They would do the version that was supposed to be on, on the page. And then they did the Robin Williams version. Like, cause he wanted to Ugh. get his stuff out, Jesus do his, Christ. do his yeah, thing. That's exhausting. That might be, maybe it was originally 20 million, but it cost 40 because. <laughs> yeah, to do twice the takes. I mean, that's a huge pain in the ass. Jesus Christ. Wow. Yeah. God. And you know, and he hasn't made a film since 1999, I think. Is yeah. Right? He went back to Scotland. He made a sequel to Gregory's girl called Gregory's two girls, which I haven't heard <laughs> anything good about. So I haven't seen that either. And he hasn't directed since. To to wrap up our discussion about Forsyth, I've got a couple of quotes from him Um, because he was a filmmaker who doesn't need to prove anything anymore. Like he started the Scottish film industry like there was no such thing before him and local hero Gregory's girl. um, They gave uh, Scottish people uh, a chance to see their own lives for the first time, not through the lens of the English, um, through the actual uh, lens of the Scottish people. And, and now he can look and see uh, an industry that has boomed and, you know, all sorts of actors like Ewan McGregor, like they get stuff made in Scotland. Things like train spotting became easier to make because of uh, the work that Bill Forsyth did. And so even though he's not working in the industry anymore, he's writing and he's a happy man and he says he has no regrets. So Forsyth uh, had a very poignant quote that I'll, I'll share with you. He said, The film business is such an obvious business. Everything has to be labeled. Any comedy worth its salt is serious because that's what comedy is, a way of dealing with things. Comedy is not about making people laugh. It's not about diverting people. It's about engaging people. I wouldn't have made movies if it was a superficial matter of entertaining people. I never, ever did that. I didn't feel like a filmmaker. I just had certain things that I wanted to say, and I ended up saying them in a few movies. And that's what the film business has given me. It has given me time, my life, a space to learn, and to be creative. I mean, it's lovely to hear somebody who's at peace with leaving the industry. It's a hard thing to do. Uh, I speak from experience. I certainly am no Bill Forsyth. Um, I think that's also interesting. He's essentially saying it's funny because it's true which yeah. obviously is a mantra that we all live by now. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, that's fascinating. I think to be able to sort of 
know that you've done great work and then walk away um, because you know you won't be able to make what you want to make, right? And um, uh, yeah, that's very interesting. Just imagine the notes that a guy like Bill Forsyth would get now for making Local Hero. Well, that's what I, I, I keep thinking that. I'm like, again, like it's like this idea of like more, like it's got to be like, there has to be, you have to see more that he hates being in this town and you have to see more that he's like, that he's in love with this woman and that, and you have to see more that like the townspeople like don't want to sell the town. I just, you have to like, you have to understand their motivation. You have to, I mean, it's like, but what, but why? Like, that's actually not often like how re- actual lives work and the audience understands that and you don't need to like hit people over the head and make everything more. And, uh, and it just, it's just, uh, the film is so subtle and so perfect, uh, that it's, that makes sense (laughs) Uh, that you would not want to be in an industry that wouldn't let you make something like that. Yeah. And I mean, and, 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 and more importantly with Forsyth, like these films are cinema to me, like they are, they feel oh, totally. like they, they are completely evocative. They're, they're talking about things that they're not telling you that they're talking about <laughs> in a movie. Like and local you, hero is in the criterion is the criterion collection now, I think. Right. It is. Yeah, it is. But, yeah. But I think housekeeping yeah. should be in there too. We should write them a letter. <laughs> Who makes <laughs> those decisions? <laughs> criterion, if you're listening, where's my damn <laughs> housekeeping Blu-ray? <laughs> Ursula, this was wonderful. I I love talking to you, and I'm so glad that you liked housekeeping. I was worried oh, that I would sh- that I would recommend it to you, and you'd be like, eh, "It was fine." No, thank you for well, thank you for having me back, and uh, thank you for having me watch the film. I, I never would have seen it. I'd like to read the book actually now, and I I never would have even heard of it. So uh, it uh, it deepened my appreciation of local hero, which I think. Uh, and just maybe a lot of sort of filmmaking in general. And um, I hope that other people will watch it. I, I really hope that people will watch Local Hero because if it's if you haven't seen it already, it will, it will be one of your favorite films. Um, and uh, it was just a joy to actually get to, to talk about the, the film that I've seen so many times, uh, but have not really gotten to spend any time sort of thinking about just all, all the ways that it's wonderful. So I really appreciated it. Maybe I should call this episode Discomfort and Joy. <laughs> you know, the only thing I wanted to talk about that I think I'm just going to go back and you can edit this out if you want to. But I think it's very interesting. The idea like who is I asked my husband at dinner. I said, who do you think the local hero is in it? Because I think in my mind, it was always Peter Rieger because he's on the poster under the words local hero. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it's not it's not Peter Rieger. It's the guy or I read later that it's supposed to be the guy, Ben, who lives on the beach, who essentially his resistance to selling the town, actually. Yes. It's like his beach saves the town. Um, but I, but I never really thought about the title before and the sort of like, it's also a little bit ironic, right? Because there's also sort of no hero. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's a great title actually, but it, but I would ask the future watchers of this film when you watch it to, to ask yourself, who is the local hero in, in local hero? Yeah. How can a movie with no actual villain have a hero? I, that's a great question. <laughs> we should have opened with that. <laughs> that's a great question. That's a great question. Maybe that's the point. Maybe that's the point. Thank you so much, Jesse. I, I love coming on. So uh, really, really a, a pleasure. Oh, yes. Absolutely. You're welcome anytime. I love having you on. And Ursula, where can people find you on the Twitter machine? I'm on Twitter at Ursula Lawrence uh, and uh, at Jacobin Calendar, but I don't, I don't update it. 
Are you are you going to do another one? You know, there are a lot of fans of the calendar, and I know that they will want one. It is a huge undertaking and a tremendous amount of work. Uh, but I, I may. We'll see. I'd love to find a publisher. <laughs> uh, well, anyway, this was so lovely, and uh, and I, I'm sure we'll we'll talk soon. Thank you again. A couple of programming notes before we conclude the program. The Junk Filter podcast just celebrated its first birthday. And what better way to celebrate this birthday than to become a patron of the podcast yourself? Patrons of Junk Filter receive access to bonus episodes every month. To become a patron, please go to patreon.com slash junkfilter. Coming soon to the podcast, we're going to have an episode about the movie Eternals. And Dan Pilled 4 is being made available to my patrons. It will be on the feed this week. The original music for this program was provided by Marker Starling. My name is Jesse Hawkins. Thank you for listening. <laughs>